So are we glad or not glad that Quentin Tarantino is not directing an R-rated Star Wars movie or Star Trek movie? <laughs> I'm glad I wasn't the first one to do it because I knew it was going to uh, happen. It's going to happen. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I know I'm going to do it a lot. Uh, I, you know what? I'm fine with that not happening. I I don't really see the the point of it. So you know, that's what it is. Yeah, it seemed like a big dumb. It seemed like a big dumb stupid idea the entire time. It right? seemed one of those things to be edgy just to be edgy. I yeah. think. And I don't. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is Star Trek. We don't need that. This isn't the place for it, people. Yeah, well, I mean... I mean, people are... Yeah, people are still debating whether or not it's cool for them to say the the fuck word in Star Trek Discovery, right? Like, that was a whole think piece generator when that show first started airing. Yeah. It's weird. Yeah, I mean, you know... Some things are sacred. Profanity will still exist, you know, at that point, but I don't know that we need that in the... I'm sure it will have evolved beyond what we do now, though. Yeah, well, you're out of your Vulcan mind. I mean, there is that line in the uh, first of the Abrams... Green-blooded hobgoblin. (laughs) Green-blooded hobgoblin. (laughs) You know. Well, and there's lots of things in the Star Trek universe we haven't grown past, right? Like, uh, you know, speaking of people's baser instincts, uh, Kirk can't help himself but be a sex cop on the ship, right? Like, he can't (laughs) help but... uh, Make detailed notes about who's pumping who. Hey, that's important for a captain to know because if things go south between those people, you can swoop okay, in. Okay, that's actually a very good. You I know mean, what? I mean, no, Fair no point. <laughs> <laughs> that was not the idea. I, the whole time I was watching the movie, I was like, you know, I've never noticed this before, but Kirk's kind of a real stick in the mud in this one. But you know what? I'll give you that. That's. I think it's part of your responsibility. Terrible point. Yeah. 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 It helps you kind of the assess the yeah. It helps you assess situations on a different level. Is morale up or down? Um, has uh, so many <laughs> dimensions there now. <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome again to the Good Trash Doncast. We gather around a table. We discuss the films you'll never discuss in a film stays course. This week, we continue our uh, marathon part threes part D, where we are looking at the third members of trilogies. And uh, this week's third member is <laughs> stop it, <laughs> Star Trek Beyond. I am not doing a thing. You're doing a thing, and you're ten um, or less. I'm not sure. <laughs> but Star Trek Beyond, Justin Lin's extravaganza in the Star Trek universe is our film. I'm still Dustin. I'm still Arthur. And I'm not entirely sure what the star date is, but I am still Dalton. So uh, there you go, and uh, we are going to be talking about Star Trek Beyond. In case you're tuning into the show for the very first time, uh, we want to warn you, dear listener, this is an analysis show, not a review show, and that does mean we're going to spoil the ending of the movie, uh, which matters some, sort of, kind of. I mean, you know, Idris Elba's in it. we got to figure out how that works out, um, because you may or may not know that uh, throughout a significant portion of the film. And uh, so we'll get into that when we get into analysis, but we'll give you the briefest of reprieves if for some reason you have not caught Star Trek Beyond before and are listening to this podcast at the same time those things being true and therefore we will do a synopsis which will be spoiler free we'll do thumbs up thumbs down reviews which are spoiler light we'll play a little game where we we teach a class using this film and expand the syllabus with additional readings and or viewings and that'll be spoiler moderate and then we get right down to phaser set to kill uh that's when we get to uh spoiler territory we get down to business there'll be some kicking music to let you know that that's going to be the thing that's happening you've been warned so any further ado Arthur, can I hear a synopsis from you, please? Finally locked into their five-year expedition aboard the Enterprise, Kirk has finally started to feel trapped in a box. They explore, meet new races, and then hop to the next planet. They find themselves at the Federation's newest starbase, Yorktown. After their arrival, they receive an emergency signal from a nearby ship. This leads them to a new planet and a dangerous new enemy. 
All righty. Well, there you go. Um, that is, um, yeah, a, a spoiler-free synopsis uh, for certain, for certain. So thank you You're for welcome. that. Um, so let's go. Um, has everyone seen the movie before? Yes. Yes. Okay. Well, then I'll just go to you first, Alton, then, just because it doesn't matter. Uh, what do you think? Do you like it or not like it? Uh, thumbs up, thumbs down, review, go. You know, I, I saw this at least, I think, twice in theaters when it was out um, in 2016. Um, I don't know if that was just because I was real busted up over uh, the passing of Anton Yelkin or, you know, I, I knew multiple people who wanted to see this movie or what. But for whatever reason, uh, I ended up in a theater at least twice while this was out. And, you know, I remembered liking it well enough. I thought it was a good time at the the picture house. But uh, I don't know, man, the... Uh, uh, the glitter's off this one for me a little bit. I don't dislike the movie by any stretch of the imagination. Um, you know me, I like liking things. Uh, it, last week uh, and me having a big wrestling match with Alien 3 notwithstanding, I uh, by and large prefer to uh, go into every movie I watch, assuming it could be the most important film ever made. Um, I'm pretty sure Star Trek Beyond ain't it, though, uh, as much as uh, I really did want to give it a fair shake. Because... You know, we're a largely uh, Star Trek-free podcast. Dustin likes it a lot, uh, but Arthur and I are kind of uh, agnostic on the franchise. Uh, you know, we've talked about both versions of Star Trek, too, uh, both uh, the wrathing of Khan and the intuing of darkness. Uh, and we really did give uh, Into Darkness a, a sound thrashing what, eight years ago or however long ago it was we talked about it. So I went into Star Trek Beyond being like, well, I liked this one, and I love Justin Lin movies, so this this should be a fun episode, and I still think it will be, but I was just surprised at how much I didn't go for it. Um, I think Carl Urban feels off in this one. like He's, he's doing a fun um, performance throughout the first two, but this one just very much doesn't feel like him doing a, a Bones impression type thing, right? Uh, and maybe that that is kind of the larger issue with it. By the time you get to the second sequel in this reboot franchise – it sure does feel like that the only reason we're keeping this going is out of contractual obligation. Uh, you know, everybody was signed on for three, and damn it, we got we to close this loop out because nobody liked the uh, the Wrath of Khan quasi-remake. Um, you know, it, it also might be um, a renewed um, frustration with J.J. Abrams as a filmmaker in the intervening years um, uh, and a you know, a familiarity, I guess, with his way of filmmaking, both behind the camera as a director, but also uh, in the production minutia as, you know, a, his, you know, his role as uh, the head of, or one of the heads, I guess you should say, of a bad robot. Um, this movie just feels like both a J.J. Abrams movie and a movie that exists in the wake of the MCU in, in ways that kind of stopped me from enjoying it as much as I expected it to. Uh, again, it might just be, uh, number one, not getting to watch it in the uh, all-encompassing uh, sensory overload that is a, a big a big theater with a large sound system. But yeah, you know, when your Beastie Boys needle drop doesn't actually do it for me, that's shocking for me. Uh, a guy who unironically thinks a, a, a sabotage needle drop is fun, even uh, if it's an overused thing to do. Uh, so again, I, I, I'm dumb in so far as that I fall for this movie's tra uh, tricks and traps in the moment, but there's not, there was never a moment in this rewatch where I was like, boy, howdy, is this, is this, uh, is this scary? I wonder how the, the old crew of the Enterprise is going to get out of this one. And, you know, that's not really what you're going to uh, a Star Trek reboot movie for. You want to see hot, young, new actors play your old favorite friends. 
but I, yeah, it just, I don't know. Star Trek 2009 is a lot of fun. Star Trek Beyond is, I don't know, it kind of feels superfluous. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I guess it's nice that they remark upon the passing of Anton and the passing of Leonard Nimoy. Those don't feel like gross moments. They do, do feel more respectful than anything. But there are moments in this that do kind of feel uh, overly pandery uh, in, in a way that gives me uh, the heebie-jeebies. Um, I'll leave it at this. Uh, I watched this with a, a friend in the uh, Praise Down Discord, um, and he, uh, Harper from uh, Secret Handshake. You can go watch their live streams over on YouTube, but made the uh, observation about uh, – one of the central conflicts of this movie, just being Kirk and Spock refusing to have a conversation before the plot of the movie starts. Uh, and his joke was, uh, one of these guys is uh, terrible at processing his emotions and the other one is Spock. Am I right? Uh, which I think is very funny. <laughs> and uh, I also think is a, is a big part of this movie's problems. Nobody talks, uh, gives, nobody gives other characters relevant information when it would be good to have it. Uh, and everybody stumbles ass backwards from one coincidence to the next and there really is no entertainment value to be had in the actual like architecture of, of this story right and that was one thing we we kind of lambasted alien 3 for a little bit last week was you know it's issues with pace it's it's issues with uh, respect for characters from previous entries but one thing we did all go for was sort of the the overall strength of its central ideas uh, at the very least, even if the plot kind of just allowed itself time to meander and let people get picked off, there there was a kind of a logical flow of things. Uh, and this film, you know, people just kind of stumble from one set piece to the next. We look at characters and fun character combinations and have, you know, fun scenes that are amusing and have good jokes. But at the end of the day, it's, uh, you know, Justin Lin padding time till he can get to the cool dirt bike scene, which does totally rip and might be the uh, the highlight of the film. Uh, I was also, you know, I was happy to see, uh, I'm going to take, give this name uh, a pass, uh, Shora Angdalush. Probably uh, wrong on that one, but she's uh, on The Expanse and a whole bunch of other stuff. Oh, she's great. Uh, yeah. Very, yeah, well, well decorated actor. Uh, yeah, she's great. One of, one of, uh, a true legend, one of the greats. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, there's things to like in this movie, um, but, you know, for everything to like, there's kind of a missed note on, and often on the same likable thing, right? Is it, speaking of, respect for our original cast members right we have uh you know Leonard Nimoy is a his version of Spock is a character within this franchise and we kind of acknowledge his between movies passing uh similarly uh George Takei is uh famously very out uh you know post Star Trek fame um and uh, they write that into the film by making uh Sulu gay which is cool but boy howdy does that insert shot of Sulu and his husband certainly feel uh, tailor-made for pulling out uh, to, as to not offend Chinese censors. You know what I mean? Like, it, and that's a, a problem plenty of studio movies have as far as uh, queer representation goes. And uh, we'll get to that when we talk about our, our next uh, sequel in the marathon next week too, I'm sure. But, uh, you know, for, again, I, I referenced that moment with Sulu because it is so frustrating for every time this movie goes to make a choice, it, it soft pedals it or uh, talks out of both sides of its mouth. And, uh, you know, I just don't have any time for that, especially when uh, we've watched so many uh, other uh, more riveting things this year. All Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. What do you say, Arthur, in thumbs up, thumbs down review of Star Trek Beyond? You know, I uh, watched the entire trilogy 
this past week or at some point last week. Ooh, uh, So this may color my my review a bit, but I, I think it's easily the best of the trilogy, um, hands down. I, I think getting Abrams directly out of the director's chair and allowing Peg uh, to co-write the script uh, really brings a different tone and flavor to the film that the first two are missing. Uh, the first two definitely fill in the wake of not only MCU, but also The Dark Knight. Uh, obviously, Enter sure. Darkness you know, rips heavily off of The the Dark Knight in a lot of its plotting. Uh, so this one feels kind of a return to form of what a Star Trek story is, I think, in a lot of ways. Uh, and I, I appreciate that quite a bit. And, you know, whether it's, you know, completely true to the original series, but I think based off of the direction it was going with Abrams versus where Lynn takes it and Peg and Jung, the, the co-writer, um, where they take it, I, I think it's planting the seeds for a much better direction for the franchise. And sadly, we probably won't get another one in this world. Uh, but I, th- I think the the f- groundwork was finally there for something much more similar to the original series, in the spirit of the original series, I should say. Uh, because I, I think there's a lot of passion for this movie. I, I think, you know, P- Peg is a, a real big Star Trek fan. Lynn is a big Star Trek fan. I think that passion comes across uh, in a number of ways. And uh, I, I really appreciate that about it. Um, because the the first movie is a bore. Uh, and the second movie, really the crack show, I think, quite a bit. Uh, and so I, I like coming back to this one. Uh, I think it's the one I rewatch the most in this. Um, but I think Dalton, I think it does kind of ha- suffer from the MCU stuff, especially in regards to the villain. But I appreciate the third act and, and the way it resolves in a lot of regards uh, because it, it's setting it up to be a let's destroy the world type of a set piece, and it doesn't become that. And I appreciate that quite a bit. Um, <clears throat> Dalton makes some good points. I, you know the 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 stuff with Sulu, which Decay was kind of openly against. Uh, when when they announced that, um, I, I agree it feels pandery in some ways. Not quite so much as the stuff that the MCU did, I think, in Endgame, um, but it does still feel a bit pandery uh, in that regard. Um, I the, the the I watched some of the behind the scenes stuff on this and the the work that went into the practical effects and the sets and the production design. Like I think there's a lot of passion even on a technical level. Um, because they've, you know, they're building these sets, the rock quarry, the the ships themselves. There's not a lot of CGI except to enhance these locations, and I really appreciate that. And they created something like 50 different alien species for this movie, and a lot of them are just background fodder. But they did full prostheses and and masks and sculpts and animatronics, and I think that stuff is really cool. Those like little details that they could have easily went with CGI or real, you know ignored that I, I think that was really cool especially that i think this was the 50th anniversary and so they were kind of trying to loud that in some way and celebrate that in some way and and that comes through i think in the production quite well and i like the cast you, you and i think that i mean that's the struggle i think all three movies are having to deal with is imitation versus interpretation and i think that's something they all struggle with through this and i think they do fine i i, I think they're a lot of fun i, I like how they get split up in this and, and kind of have those, I like seeing Spock and bones, uh, on their own. And I like seeing Kirk with, uh, with Yelchin, uh, can't think of his name. Check off. Um, and you know, when he drew that phaser on the ship, I pointed at the screen. I said, Hey there, that's Chekhov's gun. 
Um, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm, I now am, of course, doing laps in, in my office, uh, carrying the microphone with me. I'm, I'm running back and forth. I'm taking my shirt off and whipping it around my head. I love this joke. Um, but yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm warmer on this than Dalton is. I can see that. I mean, I, I don't think it's a perfect movie by any means. And, you know, in the grand scheme of good movies, I, I think it's very fine. I think it's a great Saturday afternoon, Sunday afternoon movie. And I think it's a lot of fun to watch. I didn't have any issues with the pacing. I really like the sabotage sequence. I think it's a lot of fun. I, I think it was it's really cool, especially in theaters. But it, it still does. Well, it, and it's a callback to the first movie right. as well. Totally, yeah. And I think it's fun. I think it's fun that Kirk likes what is in this universe old people music. Like I think it's that's classical a good music. gag. Uh, yeah, it's very it silly is. that classical music yeah has a totally different meaning in yeah. this world. Uh, Fight the power is also for for old bogies uh, in this version of Star Trek. It's very cute, and I guess that's Arthur. Maybe why I find myself railing against it so much is uh, I do feel pandered to because I do have an immediate yeah. emotional reaction to that. Um, I like it in the moment, and then I get a little huffy that the movie tricked me. You know. Um, I, I'm I'm uh, I'm glad that you went to bat for it though, and I haven't seen Star Trek 09 in quite some time. So it, it is good to hear from you that this does kind of for you rank as as the best of this trilogy, uh, which was my recollection from the you know the first time that I, yeah. I saw it. So I, I was kind of surprised by you know what what didn't work for me this time around. Uh, I tell you what I do like. I love those uh, little Roly boys at the beginning of the movie, huh? Oh, they're fun. Yeah. Oh yeah, they're they're adorable. I uh, I was uh, I'm Dustin, not a fan of the untucked look though on the uniforms. Oh yeah, and mm. and and like the uniforms look almost like Under Armour, like that wicking, like so it, they don't feel quite as tactical, professional as you'd expect them, uh, oh, yeah. like they do in Next Generation or something right, like right. that. Like they, they they feel less like naval yeah. sort of uniforms and more like this tactical kind of yeah gear. active gear. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. so but that's just a little thing, and that's North I face, mean that's through the whole trilogy. Star Trek brought to you by the North Face. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the rocks Under Armour. Yeah, fair enough. Well, our. Arthur, you you bring up a good point that I actually I, I did want to bring up anyway. Um, this whole franchise has kind of had some charges leveled against it about uh, you mentioned just now the aesthetics of the costumes uh, not really feeling in line with the rest of this franchise's kind of whole deal. Dustin, you are you know as I mentioned already the only one of the three of us that's kind of a committed Star Trek fan. Um, how do you feel about this this franchise in general? And of course, how do you feel about Star Trek Beyond specifically? Uh, the the franchise in general, I, I I'm, I'm a one and three guy. Um, I I don't care for Wrath of Khan into Darkness, whatever that is. Um, and, and I mean Cumberbatch is fine uh, for that, but I just I, I don't like that Abram shtick of redoing the same thing over again. Um, you know, in this sort of pastiche is barely a pastiche kind of thing. And so yeah, one could. Uh... Oh, go ahead. I just say I'm I'm generally pretty cool on Into Darkness, although there are moments of it that I find to be quite a bit of fun as well. Uh, generally speaking, though, I like the first movie of the three the best. Uh, so I, I'm in a different place in Arthur, although I don't dislike the third movie. Um, I think the third movie is a ride, uh, which is one of the things that sort of you know the sort of cinema of attractions, Tom Gunning kind of theory uh, that has been uh, leveled at uh, contemporary cinema. And uh, I, I think there is something like that going on here. That is definitely a ride that is fun um, that you don't get bored on. 
Uh, and I think that's true. Uh, there, every time you know, they there are these little reveals, these little moments of you know, again, uh, Sulu uh, being gay. Which again, I understand Takei's uh, opposition because Takei, though a gay actor, was playing a straight man, and he played Sulu as a straight man. And so I understand that he's like, well, no, no, Sulu's not a gay character. I just happen to be a gay actor. This. You know, I mean, I, I kind of get his position there. Uh, but that being said, it's not a bad thing uh, to uh, mm. sort of nod to uh, the you know the heritage of um, his advocacy for for gay rights, and uh, so I'm not opposed to it. But I, I I understand some of the vitriol against that. So for me, I really really like the first movie because I do like the reimagining. I do like the recast. I think I think it's inspired mm-hmm. as far as the selections go. And I do right. like the idea of finagling with the universe, but also connecting it to the other universe. I like the way they integrate Leonard Nimoy's Spock mm-hmm. and Zachary Quinto's Spock together. And all of that really, really works for me. So, uh, And that, that needle drop, that very first sabotage needle drop, man, works so well in the first movie. In the Darkness, it's Abrams doing Abrams' thing, which I'm not a fan of. And I'll say more about that later when we get down to uh, the syllabus stuff. But... Um, with this movie, it does feel like a long episode of Star Trek, and that's what uh, Roper, Mark Roper, what's his first name? The Roper of Roper. And Roger? Rod- no. Richard. Richard Roper. Richard Roper. Yeah. Uh, Richard Roper says uh, that it's it, it's it's another, it's an, it's a long episode of the series yeah. uh, made into a film version, and, and he says that that's not a bad thing, and I, I tend to agree. It's like, yeah, it just feels like a long you know, a two and a half hour version of uh, one of those kind of, th- and I, I'm, I'm I'm in agreement with that. I do think the sabotage needle drop still works, but it does feel like we are definitely recycling. And in that sense, uh, it does take you out because, like, oh, you're doing that thing that you did, which is a better choice would have been to do something like the anthrax needle drop in the ap- apocalyptic rock fight of uh, the it yeah. two uh, or it one um, yeah. of the of the seat whatever the remake of the it yeah. movies it chapter one i guess is what we should call it um that scene you know or something of its ilk you know not saying metal over hip hop but just saying something of that same you know, sort of energy level that you find from a song like Sabotage, but just something else just as surprising, just as interesting, just as much fun. I mean, there's enough music mm-hmm. out there in the world that I know you've already secured the rights for this once, but pay the extra yeah. money. I mean, it's not exactly a cheap movie. They're not scrimping on the budget, so why not go ahead and do that? So, I mean, all of that works for me. Uh, I have fun the whole time. I'm never bored, so you know, success, success, success. But unlike Star Trek uh, overall, is that Star Trek does make you think, and Star Trek, even in its episodic structure when you're talking about the episodic films or the uh, episodic series or some of the films that are a little on the episodic side they are thematically cohesive and this movie just isn't it it, it lacks uh, it opens up with this idea of Kirk is a free spirit and wants you know rebellious in nature and he sort of found himself inside the internal clockwork of the machine of Starfleet that's an interesting movie but it's not about that. It just happens to have some of that in there. Uh, again, Sulu's gay. It happens to have that, but it's not about that. It's got this relationship uh, dynamic between uh, Spock and uh, Kirk. Uh-huh. Well, oh. Spock and Ahura also, yeah, that romantic sequence, but it's it's there, but it's not really dealt with uh, between Spock and Kirk about not communicating your feelings, but it's not really dealt with. 
this moment of uh, the sort of abrasiveness of Bones. And, uh, but he really does genuinely love these people, but he doesn't know how to say it, right? Uh, so there's like, you know, ways you don't want to disappoint another person you're in a relationship with, with a Spock Kirk thing, but there's a way in which I, I deeply, deeply am committed and love you, but I, I can't say that kind of stuff. I got to act abrasive, in a, which I, something I incredibly identify with. Uh, but that being said, it doesn't deal with it. You know, this idea of family yeah. and of loyalty. It doesn't deal with this idea of uh, warfare or harmony. Uh, what makes humanity humanity? It, it has it, but it doesn't really... It, it, it's not thematically cohesive. It's got lots of interesting little pieces, but rather than picking one or two or even three, it just sort of throws them all in the pot and like, oh, yeah, we're thinking about this and we're thinking about this and there's a little bit of this and here's a little something, something here and here's something here. And, and we never really reckon with any of them. And what Star Trek always has been has been thinking man science fiction. On the popular level. I mean, not like Isaac Asimov or Carl Sagan or something like that, which is really the, the, the deep end of thinking man science fiction. But on the popular level of intellectual science fiction that is wrestling with the big issues of humanity, of mortality, of life and death. I mean, the whole mortality thing comes up with Kirk's birthday being the day his dad dies. Cool! Yes, let's talk about that. Let's center this thing around birthdays and about death and dying and, and, and legacy and all of that. But no, we'll just, we'll just mention it and then we'll move on. And so for that, it becomes a miss uh, because it is a, uh, it is a sum of parts that is less than its – it's a whole that's less than the sum of its parts. And so I like it, and I like a lot about it, and I have a lot of fun watching it, but it's – it fails to be what Star Trek really fundamentally is, and that's not about being loyal to the uniforms or to what not my Starfleet or yeah. whatever that kind of garbage is. And again, it, it does these sort of pandering things. It wrecks the Starship Enterprise like we do in Star Trek Insurrection, which was a big thing with the next-gen film there that did that. And I don't care. I mean, fine, wreck the machine, make another one. That's what they do. Um, but that's not enough just to sort of play fan service, and it's not enough just to be fun. It It needs to be what Star Trek fundamentally is, which is uh, the questions and the quest of what it means to be human, what it means to be part of a society, what it means to function in the world. And it lacks the nuance and depth and really commitment to a single thesis um, that makes every good Star Trek episode work and makes every good Star Trek film work. And that's the fundamental problem, I, I find, uh, with that. So uh, that's where I end up landing uh, with Star Trek and beyond. You have to say it like that. Uh, now, where where is our scene where Bones has to give Chekhov yet another round of antibiotics? That's what I want to know. Oh yeah, for the space clap, of course. For the space clap, but it's Kirk who gives all the rounds of antibiotics in the first one, right? Well, and uh, well, yeah, Kirk has to get all of his shots before he jumps on board. I was just making a joke about well, every they... every time we get a shot of Chekhov, it's uh, him macking on uh, some some new uh, uh, being uh, that we've yet to see before. Yeah, he's got to explore the universe. Yeah, That's his mission. Well, he's got to boldly know, go. <laughs> he has exactly, and this could have been, you know, this could have been one of those movies where they go talk to God at the center of the universe, right? And uh, that, and that thing that happens all the time. Yeah, in Star, the Star Trek, Trek Five, which is a God. fail. It's a fail of a movie, but at least it's unified in its exploration of that possible concept, yeah. right? Yeah, but I agree. Let Chekhov hit on a deity, dude. That would be very interesting if it were to occur. Uh, but again, as you said, that would require this movie to commit to a thesis of any kind. Which, right. And again, that was really what I meant. And that was kind of why I wanted to throw to you as a Star Trek fan was I, I was kind of curious for you to tease out your 
feelings in that regard. Yeah, like I said, it, it is fun, and I, I mean, I want to see my characters do like action movie stuff. Like, yeah, give me mm-hmm. that. I'm, I'm sure. there for it, and on, on huge scale, I'm all for all of those kinds of things. And, and the the individual actors who are doing my beloved characters from an, uh, another era, I like all those selections, but it's just it's just not enough. It's just is not enough. So. There you go, dear listener. Those were our thoughts. Um, we are generally eh, phaser set to stay in the holster. Um, that's where we're at right now. We are not shooting one way or the other uh, with this film. Let's move on, though, and let's play our little mental exercise called Expanding the Syllabus, in which we imagine that we're teaching a class in which uh, Star Trek Beyond becomes a significant part of that class. What additional films would you be using with that or readings, and what would the class be? It would be a part of a class? Um, what's, what's the scope of the educational experience? I go to you first, Arthur. What say you, my friend? Yeah, I think this would be part of a maybe a sci-fi course or a sci-fi lit course or something like that. I'm not exactly sure. Uh, but what I've always really appreciated and what you you touched on and really spoke to the thesis of what Star Trek is at its core, you know, about exploring humanity and, and the mind and, and those kinds of themes. And it was always a very progressive show, uh, especially for its time. And, and I appreciate that. So I was trying to think of, I really didn't get to do the research I wanted because I was really trying to tap into sci-fi that is more of that kind of positive progressive nature. It's not dystopian. It's not this kind of, you know, man, uh, I can't think of the phrase I, I want, but you know, this kind of condemnation of science where oh yeah, like go- man has gone too far. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, like the Jurassic park where we shouldn't have invented dinosaurs. You know, we shouldn't have cloned the dinosaurs. It's a bad idea. Humans are stupid. Let's, you know, we don't play God. And I feel so much of the sci-fi that we do get, especially I think on a big screen, does tend to lie in one of those two camps, either dystopian or these kind of um, warnings of, of going too far with science. Uh, but I, I, you know, I think there's a lot of hopefulness in, in Roddenberry's work. And so that was kind of what I would want to tap into, I think, and kind of explore. And so I, I didn't get to invest into this as much as I want, but I, I think I would start with Wally from Pixar, which does start as a dystopian film. Mm-hmm. But I, I think by the end, it, it's reclaimed its hope. In in something, and so you know, a a goal to rebuild and restructure and course correct for where we went wrong as a planet. Um, and so it, it's kind of a cheat, I think, to get in there. But I, I do like Wally quite a bit, and especially as a film uh, from a filmmaking standpoint, I think it's a beautiful film. Uh, but I, I think that's where I'd start with. Uh, I also want to do The Martian. Uh, okay. The, the one that Ridley Scott directed. Uh, maybe the book. I, I tried to read the book, and I just couldn't get into it. But I, I think there's a lot of interesting uh, discussion of the will to live and man's innovation and um, the hope to to uh, progress and evolve and find new tactics to survive. Uh, I also want to do The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I want to do some Douglas Adams. Just kind of get off course a little bit and a little zany and a little absurd. Uh, but talk about life's absurdity and the whole purpose of life, the whole answer to everything uh, and, and how that's explored and how maybe that doesn't really mean as much as we think it does. Uh, and I'd also want to do some Arthur C. Clarke, I think, and maybe look at 2001 A Space Odyssey yeah, uh, and, and dive into that and kind of talk about that film and that book and, and how he and Kubrick collaborated and the kind of progression of writing that and how that all came about. Uh, and, and I think that's kind of where I would 
take this portion of it. It'd probably be maybe like a week or something in there. And I think 2001 is an interesting dialectical choice because you have both and, right? The advancement of humanity to another level of consciousness and awareness and sort of oneness with the universe and also the sort of destructiveness of HAL 9000. Yeah. Right? You sort of you get to have your cake and eat it too yeah. with that choice. And I think that's a good pick for that. Cool. So, very cool, very cool. I like that very much, Arthur. Well, what do you say, Dalton? How would you expand the syllabus? Well, I, I am actually kind of picturing a, a a class that's, you know, not necessarily similar to Arthur's, but definitely in the same vein. Uh, uh, it, it's a class that is also kind of concerned with examining science fiction. Uh, and I think it might just be a, just that, a comparative fiction class of some kind. Um, but more than looking at whether or not the overall message or tone or themes of a story are dystopian or utopian, I, I am just kind of concerned with uh, doing a close read of the politics of a variety of different science fiction works, both self-contained and franchise-oriented, uh, because I think there's a, a lot there. Um, we uh, often find ourselves talking about politics and theology on this show, and that is probably because everything is politics, especially things that you put faith into. Um, and uh, boy, howdy, is there little people put more faith into than science fiction universes, huh? It's kind of mm -hmm. a weird thing that just sort of happened uh, to our culture. It didn't just sort of happen. You know, Star Trek and Star Wars had a big damn uh, a big damn bit of uh, to do about it, um, but I do still think it's it's fundamentally interesting. Not only insofar as that you know people have fun writing think pieces about these things, but insofar as a gigantic, uh, as we've already alluded to a couple of times in this episode, gigantic internet fights take place over this crap uh, and sometimes spill out into the real world. Uh, it, and it really does just come down to what do some people. Uh, choose to fixate on about some works that they are interested in. Um, so I think a fun place for us this class to start would be doing a kind of a close read, compare and contrast of the politics of Starship Troopers, the novel, uh, and Starship Troopers, the uh, the film by, um, oh my gosh, uh, Paul, Verhoeven. Paul Verhoeven. Thank you. Um, I, I Thank you, Dustin, for being ready in case I could not uh, pull a legendary uh, gross out auteur, uh, old Polly V. Uh, so yeah, no, the, the novel, uh, if, if you're not aware, uh, Starship Troopers, the film, uh, was misunderstood in its day as just kind of uh, wholesale uh, doing the fascistic uh, themes in the book. And it is kind of downright nonsensical. It makes you worry about the uh, the overall intelligence level of film criticism, uh, film critics and uh, film criticism, of course, going on in 1997 that... Uh, a bunch of people who allegedly are professional movie watchers sat down to watch a Paul Verhoeven movie uh, and couldn't figure out that it didn't like Nazis. Um, I don't know. Maybe that's maybe it's a whole the Internet didn't exist yet thing. Um, but I don't know. I can read an interview with a guy. Uh, but I do find uh, Verhoeven's distaste for the source material really interesting. And this is one of those rare cases where I'm uh, acquainted with both the uh, the source material and the adaptation um, so I think it'll be fun to compare. I'm not going to make the class read all of that book because it's not short and it's not particularly a fun read. Um, even as a kid, I, I was, uh, which is the last time I read it, I, I do remember uh, it's probably oh, 14, 15, maybe a little older than that. Um, but I had already seen uh, and developed quite a love for the movie. And it was very interesting to go through the novel and just kind of watch it have multiple essays defending um, military juntas and fascism uh, and uh despotism in general or not even despotism i guess more uh, just uh 
uh, you know, well, military juntas, governance by a, a military body, uh, paramilitary or otherwise. I, I think then we will have to, of course, move on to examining Trek and wars. Uh, we'll probably look at some select episodes of the original series and TNG. You know, maybe we'll check out Wrath of Khan, the one that Dustin likes. Uh, but you don't even really like Wrath of Khan that much, though, do you, Dustin? I mean, Wrath of Khan's good. I mean, I, I, yeah, I like, I like the even-numbered, for the most part, uh, original Star Trek movies. I'm glad you referenced that Simon Pegg joke, actually. Uh, it, it is fun that Simon Pegg had to, uh, is famous for making uh, that joke on uh, the show Spaced about uh, how all the odd-numbered Star Trek movies are shite, and then he did have to write an odd-numbered Star Trek movie. Uh, we love you, Simon. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it, I think the politics of Star Trek have always been kind of perplexing and interesting to me because it is very much, you know, Gene Ronberry setting up this utopian society writing from, you know, his his time and his place and his background. And it, it is interesting to watch this franchise proceed over the next, you know, 40, 50 some odd years and to watch different writers, uh, you know, set it in different times uh, in this fictional universe's chronology and history. And it is a franchise that is so deeply dedicated to canon um, in a way that even Star Trek or Star Wars uh isn't at this point with, you know, Disney kind of going, all right, there's too much stuff here. We're going to go ahead and reboot your canon for you, George Lucas, uh, because we're a multi-billion dollar company. We've, we've got too many plates to spin to worry about which of these novels from the 90s count. Um, but but Star Trek, uh, in what little toe dipping I've done into the the lore of that world and the fandom around that world, it does very much concern seem concerned with keeping continuity sound and anytime continuity is violated finding an in-universe can <laughs> excuse for that violation which I, i'm just fascinated by but again outside of that serious devotion to what is and isn't star trek i i am interested in what is and isn't utopian what is gene ronberry's vision of a utopia look like and how does that get carried on and how often does it still end up being a world where the most important person in the room is a white guy with a laser gun uh, and I think looking at Star Wars, uh, after we look at this kind of, uh, well, again, I don't, I, I was going to call it a neoliberal utopia, but I don't know Star Trek's and the Federation's uh, within, uh, you know, as a governing body within that universe well enough to speak on it right now. But I think that'd be the fun of the class, right, is kind of to examine the Federation's whole, it's all right to make first contact sometimes, but you're not allowed to influence the outcome of a, of a culture or history. You know, it's the, the rules have always seemed wishy-washy to me. And maybe I can have Dustin elaborate on that for us a little bit when we get into a, a business time. But I think looking at Star Wars will also be great because, you know, this is a this is a story that starts out with George Lucas saying, gee, wouldn't it be interesting to make a movie where the Viet Cong were the good guys? Uh, and it ends up in. Uh, you know, the year of our uh, movies, 2017, being a hotly contested how woke is Star Wars and how woke should it be or should it not be fight going on during the rise of American fascism and then goes into a third sequel that's, you know, pretty much about nothing and has no politics whatsoever. I think the trajectory, and then of course, if we look at the prequel trilogy, it's very much trying to do some kind of um, art deco Europe in the 30s type stuff. So I, I think the politics of that trilogy of trilogies are super interesting, and I think it allows us to do some 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 looking at both class in America over the last 40 some odd years, uh, but it allows us to kind of uh, examine, again, George Lucas uh, 
when he was still in charge of that franchise is all about how their poetry and how they rhyme. Uh, and I think looking at how Star Trek tries to echo itself and how our own histories echo themselves is, is, is fun to be had there. Then of course we will have to talk about alien a little bit. Uh, we did that last week, so I won't belabor the point here. Uh, but I think it's fun to look at a, a capitalist dystopia uh, where Wayland Utani is responsible for most things going on in the galaxy. We'll look at Firefly, the libertarian science fiction TV show, uh, although I think you could complicate its politics more. Uh, I think then we'll move into both the personal and the political by doing a little stalker and annihilation compare and contrast. I know we did that a few weeks ago, but I think, again, to Arthur's point about dystopia versus utopia, I think those are two very different films that both kind of handle um, humanity's impulse towards self-destruction in both similar and different ways. Uh, and then speaking of science fiction works that deal with the same subject matter similarly, I think looking at Close Encounters and Arrival will be really fun uh, because both are stories about um, first contact forcing human cooperation and forcing cross-political and cross-economic cooperation, uh, but also show... Uh, the bigness of the of the universe kind of preventing people from being um, the parents they want to be in both films. And I think that's handled without spoiling either. I, I think it's interesting the way that Close Encounters and Arrival both deal with parenting in the wake of uh, something bigger um, than your current existence. So that's the class. Uh, again, we'll kind of start big on the politics and then kind of go more into the personal uh, using kind of Firefly. And it's weirdly um you know, either libertarian or anarchistic politics, depending on who you ask, I think kind of using it as a pivot point to uh, pivot around whether or not we're talking about the personal or the, the large and global, I think will be interesting for this class. Very cool. Very cool. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Uh, what I would say in expanding my syllabus is I was think that uh, sort of like a class that we might do. Uh, we did a horror film not very long ago. Uh, that was real gimmicky, and I talked about ghouls, gimmicks, and gold, the uh, Matthews book. Uh, was it Poltergeist? It might have been Poltergeist that we were talking about it. I don't remember. We talked about the Tingler and Smell-O-Vision and a whole bunch of other stuff uh, in connection to that. Uh, because you did the uh, movie that's got... It was Gremlins 2. Gremlins 2. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I talked about Mant and I talked yeah, about... Yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So back in Gremlins 2 time, we talked about that. And I think that same kind of... Uh, Marketing ploy uh, style filmmaking. So I'm, I'm envisioning this as part of a larger class uh, regarding uh, just the industrial system of uh, cinema and uh, thinking about the legacy sequel. Uh, is what I would want this module to be on because uh, Star Trek Beyond does uh, pose an interesting place in which uh, you remove the reins to an extent from your J.J. Abrams but still continues to be just that. And it's also a weird failure because they don't quite line up with the 50th anniversary of Star Trek and they don't really tap into that like uh, James Bond does uh, with yeah. Skiffle, I mean Skyfall. And uh, so there's a, there's a kind of a weird failure there. That works um, in a strange way, and yet it continues to be sort of like a long episode of the original series, and so it it, it does and does not do those things, and is tied to J.J. Abrams, again, sort of re-enunciation of uh, different films, and that would obviously take us back to Star Wars The Force Awakens, uh, which is sort of the big failure in all of this, I it, it, for my money. I think it's an ultimate failure of the Lego sequel. Uh, then maybe looking at Jurassic Park, another failure, I would, da I would dare say. Jurassic World. Jurassic World, yes, Jurassic World well, of the Jurassic Watch Parks. your mouth, sir. So Jurassic Park is great, but Jurassic World as a Lego sequel of it, um, Chris Pratt notwithstanding, um, is 
disastrous in many ways. Uh, and then looking at two versions that I think maybe, in my opinion, as a critic, uh, maybe less so as a theorist, work. And uh, th- those are Prometheus from Ridley Scott. Again, bringing back somebody original there. Uh, and I guess I'm going to go ahead and uh, name something else. Uh, Fury Road does this, too. I wasn't even thinking about it before I just was speaking just now. Yeah. So Fury Road's another mm. successful uh, move into that territory. And then in the Star Wars universe, Rogue One. Uh, I think Rogue One works. I, I mean, this, uh, but it's got a weirdness there with uh, CGI Peter Cushing and CGI Carrie Fisher, uh, which I saw that movie the day Carrie Fisher died. Really? Yeah, Woof. in theaters. And wow. so Woof. that was weird for me. Uh, ah. Very, very weird for me uh, to be in a theater in that moment, not expecting and then having that. But that being said, you know, I mean, we are in a time and place in which uh, actors can come back from the grave uh, in a weird revenant kind of way. And so there's something strange going on there with those. But that being said, Rogue One, and I, and I, I watched, rewatched the film in preparation this week. Oh, cool. Rogue One is my favorite of everything that's happened since the original trilogy. Really? Uh, of all of the things. I, I can watch Rogue One much easier than I can anything else. Out Fascinating. Out of the entire, you know, yeah. smear of stuff that came afterward. Wow. Um, yeah. That okay. is, yeah. Deeply interesting to me. Yeah, uh, Rogue One works uh, on on a whole bunch of levels for me, mostly because I don't think it's got the characters. I think it's doing something else in the universe Mm. in the same way that Prometheus works because Mm. it's got the characters, sort of, but not really. Where do you stand with Creed? Because that's one I thought you were going to mention. Creed I like a lot. Uh, No, Creed Creed would actually be another one that works. Yeah, uh, for sure. I think Creed is another one in that that category that works, but then at that point, the module becomes a whole class all by itself, and so you've got to make some selection somewhere, somehow, right, in ways that Rocky Balboa does not. So, um, you know, which might be an interesting counterpoint because they're both in the same franchise. But that's what I was hoping to do with The Force Awakens and with Rogue One. Yeah. The Force Awakens not working and then going back to Rogue One going, yeah, this is what we want. Uh, and why is it that those things are more critical successes? And thinking about critical scholarship and the role of the critic and how that makes or breaks the legacy sequel, and that sometimes even when the critics find it, it doesn't necessarily find its audience because Prometheus doesn't really do well in terms of box office. No. Though I think Prometheus in most ways really, really works. I like it. A, I like a, it a lot. As a film. So, uh, but it's also kind of got... Uh, a famously mixed reception. I just mean with audiences, I think. Uh, even yeah, I mean, critically even, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, thank you, Arthur. Yeah, it's it's extremely mixed. I think you, you'll you find myriad opinions on Prometheus, both as like uh, great and unheralded, a little underrated, interesting, outright bad. Like, I, I think opinions on that film really run the gamut, which I think makes it such an interesting choice, Dustin. Yeah. So, well, there you go, dear listener. Your syllabus has got longer, and then it got longer on the fly for me, so I apologize for adding some Fury Road and some Creed. You're Nalloa. a mean teacher. I'm, uh, yeah, I like to make you watch a lot. Man, I'm putting together this novels class right now. I'm making them read like 10 books over the course of the Cruel. semester. Oh, yeah, I'm a monster. But What's I'm, the longest one? The longest one of the books that we're picking is probably, in terms of pages, I don't think any of them are super-duper long. So uh, maybe... Uh, uh, and and um, Lev um, Asher Lev's uh, my name is Asher Lev by Kyan Potok. I could not get the names. I was like re- mixing all my Hebrew stuff. My name is Asher Lev by Kyan Potok. I'm um, not reading the Chosen because the Chosen is particularly long. Um, but yeah, that's uh, that's probably the longest of the books. What's the shortest? The shortest book is probably The Metamorphosis by Kafka. 
Cool. So, yeah. Fun. That's lots lots of fun. We were all over the world in that class. Um, maybe the shortest might be uh, Mines of Corn. I don't know. Anyway, uh, we can talk about that class some other time. Uh, I think it's now time to get down to business. It's business. It's business time. I don't know what you're trying to and say. That's right. This is the appropriate time for this business regarding Star Trek Beyond. So, uh, thematically, we can do a lot of stuff here. We've already had something of a discussion of this film situation uh, within the world of the Legacy sequel. Do we, I, don't, I assume we have nothing more to say about it than just simply saying it's one of those things and it yeah. kind of works, doesn't work. Um, and we probably got into that a lot on In the Darkness anyway, I yeah. imagine. A lot of that same conversation. Yeah. So. I, yeah. Yeah, I think you're all. I think the only thing worth talking about is, and I think this kind of works for the in the film's favor, and we've talked about it a little bit, is just sort of the pacing of this film as a adventure of the year sort of Star Trek event, right? Like, there's mm-hmm. not, you know, the Enterprise gets destroyed, but what Star Trek movie does it not get destroyed in, right? You mentioned an insurrection, but I'm pretty sure uh, it gets tore up and into dark. In, into darkness yeah. too. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That's true. It's totally beat it up. It doesn't crash, but most it's of the team, bad shape. Yep. Yeah. Most of the TNG movies, I think it ends up scuttled in some way. Um, but uh, you know, I, I think it is all right to go ahead and kind of put the characters' arcs and stasis really. Um, but the thing that I'm interested in, as far as its, its status as a legacy sequel, is I, I think, and you, you you mentioned this already, Dustin the kind of central emotional conflict of this film being whether or not Kirk can be a good captain. And because that means not being a a bad boy who plays by his own rules. Right. And you know, this is a little bit more getting into the, the sort of hero and villain themes of the film. Uh, We don't have to get too deep into them right now if we don't want to. Uh, But you know, this, this sort of juxtaposition of um, crawl is, is, you know, the name that we he's given early in the film, but I can't remember Idris Elba's, you know, revealed Starfleet, you know, human. Edison. Um, it's something weird. Edison. Yeah, it's Edison. Um, Balthasar. Balthasar yeah. Edison, yep. I think is what it is, which is a wa- great name. Uh, but well, yeah, it's kind of, they heard Stacker Pentecost uh, and they were like, we need to come up with something better. And they didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and you can't do better than Stacker Pentecost. You Truly can't. one of the great film names. Uh, but yeah, kind of posing, Captain Kirk and Captain Edison as these sort of opposite ends of the same spectrum or, you know, just sort of uh, opposing poles. You know, Edison saying Starfleet's mission is a lie. Starfleet is an act of war. It is a colonization entity. That that is what it does. It forces civilizations under its yoke. And the only way for beings and civilizations to thrive is through conflict, which are pretty standard and classical um, fascistic ideas going all the way back to the Roman Empire. Uh, whereas Kirk is, you know, forced to kind of reckon with this impulse in, him, in himself, right? His impulse towards uh, shooting first and asking questions later. How successful, and again, this is why I, I kind of laid some breadcrumbs for us here earlier on in the show, Dustin. For you as a Star Trek fan, does that feel kind of in line with the franchise's take on Kirk? Uh, with kind of Kirk's characterization, both, you know, as done by uh, Shatner and uh, and also in this reboot franchise. Like, does any of this work for you? Because, again, and that that was why I was like, I don't know how much I want to talk about Starfleet's or the Federation's politics, because I don't really know that I know them within the universe that well. But I know you're pretty well read on stuff like Deep Space Nine, which gets really into the weeds on this kind of stuff. 
Yeah, I mean, I would say uh, uh, the counterpiece, perhaps, in the original sort of run cast of Star Trek for this is Star Trek uh, Film 6, The Final Frontier, in which, uh, you know, the Klingons are always the warlike, fascistic sort of race uh, throughout as big heavies. Uh, in the uh, in the franchise overall, although there's some nuances mm-hmm. given to that in individual series and individual films, we don't need to necessarily get into that right now. Um, but um, but Kirk is um, not really willing to uh, make peace with the Klingons because of a vengefulness. And uh, there's a moment where uh, you know uh, Spock says, "Well, if we don't do this, they'll die," and Kirk says, "Let them die." You know, which is a pretty strong, you know, I mean, he's not really just this glory boy, peace and safety uh, diplomat kind of character. Uh, he really mm-hmm. is kind of an old soldier there. And, uh, you know, him him sort of coming to the place of uh, his arc over the course of that movie, because, it, they, you know, Klingons killed his son, and that's all part of the, you know, longer narrative over that course of films, uh, because they all sort of do work back to back in sort of a, a kind of a serial kind of fashion. He does come to a place where he's like, no, peace is worth it. And he fights against those forces that uh, would uh, oppose peace and who would sort of try to do everything they can to avoid, uh, you know, a, a, a real kind of collaboration and cooperation uh, between Klingons specifically and these other species. And so in Star Trek Beyond, though, it's just like, hey, working together or being all fighty-fighty. Um, and uh, Edison's like, oh, fighty-fighty's better. And Kirk eventually's like, no, getting along's better. Well, okay, Sesame Street beats you know Fight Club, I guess, but <laughs> whatever, you know? I mean, th- that, that, that's my whole feeling, is like the, the, the movie doesn't really wrestle with that overall as a theme. And that's introduced in the, I mean, the I mean, first it's, scene. It's set up as a central Wait. conflict. Yeah. Yeah. Is can Kirk well, tame himself? Yeah. yeah, that's the thing that's so frustrating, right? Is it's set up super early in the movie and then is not picked up again until, as Dustin, I think you were about to say, the third act. Like that, that as a theme is just kind of put on the back burner entirely until we start to learn about Edison's motives, yeah, uh, and his you know his true nature. I think what's interesting, and I, I think what because what it comes down to, I think, is this idea of it inter- like all the ideas that. Dustin mentioned earlier in his review about this film introduces happened in that first act. And then we kind of get some resolutions in the third act. And then there's this action movie in the middle of the film. Mm-hmm. And the thing I kept kind of, as I watched all of these movies, the kind of thing that kind of kept coming back to me is Star Trek was never designed to be an action franchise. Right. And, and so I think, deal, yeah. yeah, you know, that's what really I think hinders this from doing anything. They, they feel the need that they have to go do these set pieces and they have to go do all this action things and you know I, I feel like in its bones it's more of a character drama than anything absolutely and, and you know the, the problem with that is that's not sexy and that doesn't sell as a blockbuster right and and so I, I think you know kind of going back to the legacy sequel idea and, and those issues is that's where it really falls apart I think in a lot of ways yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree that Star Trek, at its best, is a character drama. I mean, you know, you think about The Next Generation, and you look yeah. at the reviews, the first three seasons of The Next Generation are pretty garbage, um, because we don't really know these characters, we don't really know their relationships, and it takes that long to sort of get to a place uh, in the course of that series where now we can think about the development of Picard, or Worf, or Data, or whomever. Yeah. And uh, that becomes, you know, what's interesting and uh, th- I think you can do that and you punctuate it with action. I think that's what you do for good cinema 
is yeah. that you make it a character drama yeah. punctuated with some real and, and again I mean they direct the stew out of that uh, uh, those bees thing drones things that's awesome the uh, dirt bike sequence is amazing uh, again mm. I'm, I'm still kind of sympathetic to uh, the needle drop of uh, sabotage and blowing all the stuff up and fighting inside the city like all of that stuff really kind of works on a on a big spectacle kind of level. But it's not supported by this strong character drama. I mean, there's yeah. character bits. There's nods to it. I mean, Kirk is wrestling with the mortality of his dad. I mean, that's huge. Yeah. And, I mean, that's moving kind of stuff. You know, you think about this relationship that's sort of broken because Spock got this obligation to propagate his species, for crying out loud, and whether or not he can still stay with Uhura. Cool. Let's think about that and make those choices. Yeah. But... It's just like, oh, by the way, you know, I'm living my life in the world. There's some things I don't know what to do with myself with. And, okay, great. And then, boom, 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 action, pow, pow, pew, pew. Ugh. Yeah. The the action should serve to underscore the themes and, and the questions being asked. And here, it's kind of the other way around in a way that doesn't make sense. Yeah, I totally agree. Truly. Well, and, you know, I, this is something that I, I ended up making note of and we kind of got there so i'll bring it up but even outside of the themes that get dropped i I think this film recycles set pieces both from within its own franchise but from other properties right like there's a lot of visual cues in that final uh, you know we we get the announcement that gravity might get a little wonky um Mm -hmm. just so that the movie can let you know it's about to get to do an inception fight and then we get into this sort of space where gravity is weird and it is a lot of imagery of uh, you know, a city sandwiched on top of another one, um, which, if, of course, you know, if you've you mess around with video games at all the last 10 to 20 years, you know, you've, you've played uh, your Halos and your Mass Effects or whatever. So th- this uh, this image of, uh, you know, a landmass that's visible from uh, above you from another landmass, right, is not uh, foreign to science fiction, but it definitely, as far as the design of it from a special effects standpoint really does seem to crib from inception more than it probably needs to um and that's the only one that's coming to mind right now but there were a couple of times throughout the film where i was like uh this feels overly familiar um and it, it does just kind of kind of, i don't know if i just want to attribute this to jj abrams because i'm uh, annoyed uh with his career kind of overall uh, and i think he has a tendency towards hack uh, but there, there certainly is just a, a recycled and rehashed feeling that I get from this movie. And I don't know if it is, you know, all these themes we're talking about that get picked up and put away kind of unceremoniously, or it is, uh, you know, Justin Lin being kind of shoehorned into directing action beats that are not nearly as original or interesting as some of the stuff he gets to direct in the past franchise, you know? Um, but, but again, it was just the, sameness of some of these action beats to things that have come before it um that that even more hampered these themes that uh, are are just there to prop up the these same very same action beats if that makes sense no it totally, it totally does make sense and again it, it's sort of again very much uh actor service as much as it is uh fan service in doing that and it feels like you know i gotta get my bone scene so okay here's our bone scene I gotta get my Spock scene. Here's my Spock scene. Okay, well here's our Spock and O'Hara scene. All right, we gotta get that in. Okay, what's Scotty's big scene gonna be? You know, and uh, they they've got their sort of triumphant moments that are there. And I, I think about that sort of uh, moment in Fellowship of the Ring and Lord of the Rings series, uh, where you've got everybody coming up atop the hill, and uh, the very first time you're introduced to that bum 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 theme, and it's like a hero yeah. shot, a set of hero shots. Yeah. And uh, everyone's got their hero shot. 
with a bit of dialogue. But it's, you know, again, that's uh, the the franchise filmmaking does that for sure. But it's it it really does feels ham fisted. It just feels like it's just just crammed in there somewhere wherever we can make it fit, and it, it just it lacks again what I keep saying is cohesiveness. Uh, and that's I, I think that's part of why it doesn't work. And so you get like a moment for for uh, well, you get the moment with Scotty like hanging off the edge of the cliff. That's a re- repeat of uh, when uh, uh, Kirk's motorcycle falls off the edge of the cliff when he's a kid. Yeah, you know, I'm named yeah. James Tiberius Kirk or whatever. And you know, it's kind of a cool moment with again sabotage in the background. And so you redo that scene, but it's Scotty's scene this time, and it's a hero moment for Scotty coming out of the pod that or torpedo that he sort of rigged for himself to survive in. Cool, but it, it, it there's just there's no there there. There's no glue. It's like ah, I love that. Can we make that part of a thing about? James Montgomery Scott. Let's let's learn about this character, but we don't. And he's just—I don't know. It bothers me. Well, speaking of no, there, there. I have nothing to say about this because I don't think any of the three of us are actually qualified to talk about it. But I do want to point out that it's weird that this movie puts uh, Algerian French actress Sophia Batella in uh, whiteface. I, I don't know what that's about. <laughs> and uh, again, I don't feel—I don't feel qualified to talk about it. But uh, it's a little—it's uh, it's a little honked up. Um, I do like her in this movie a lot, and uh, you know, just we haven't got to talk about Sophia Vitella yet. She doesn't really have anything to do, uh, which is why you saying there's no there there kind of made me think about it. Other than uh, me not wanting to talk about any there that might be there with the uh, design choices on that character, but uh, it's it's you know kind of a similar situation that we found with Alice Eve as Carol Marcus in Into Darkness, who uh, you know exists there pretty much for a shot of Alice Eve in her underwear, and then is not in this movie whatsoever. Uh, this movie has a real hard uh, new uh, a real big uh, new girl on the team problem you know what I mean Mm -hmm. Um, and and that just you know I don't really again I don't know how much there 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 is because the film is so disinterested in it but I thought it was worth mentioning yeah Uh, just because of Star Star Trek's you know role as a uh, a, a supposedly uh, a sci-fi franchise that's supposedly all about uh, you know equitability Right or egalitarianism, right? The 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 progressive you know science fiction series, right? Yeah, correct. Um, which I don't know. I I think it's it's assumption of a um, a, a shiny utopia really asks some pretty big uh, assumptions. I don't know. And this is just getting into my issues with Star Trek, and maybe you can kind of flush these things out better for me, Dustin. But uh, I don't know. I, I find uh, Star Star Wars is kind of lived in, broke down um, future to be a little bit more compelling, just from a believability standpoint. Oh, I, I totally agree. I, I think especially uh, original series Star Trek and uh, moving into even into the films, uh, though the films do have their conflict and their breakdowns, and there there are some pl- problems within Starfleet. I mean, you know, Episode Six, which I already or Film Six, I, as I've already named, uh, does that kind of stuff there, where there's this sort of mm-hmm. uh, plot within uh, Starfleet uh, to undermine and assassinate uh, various figures to keep uh, gotcha. the status quo in place. But gotcha. uh, Gene Roddenberry was overwhelmingly, and again, we see this early on in the uh, Next Generation series, where it is overwhelmingly utopian. And uh, it does take, well, Gene Roddenberry's death uh, for them to sort of get around that and get back to it. And there is sort of the specter of Gene Roddenberry haunting uh, the world of uh, Abrams's um, Star, War- Star Trek, I see I did it already, Star Trek trilogy. 
But um, I do find and I appreciate um, what Arthur was saying earlier about his dystopian, utopian sort of uh, dialectic uh, film mm-hmm. in which uh, it hasn't all just gone to hell in a handcart. Uh, where things have progressed and things have gotten better, but humanity still remains flawed with its problems. I think that's the better kind of futuristic science fiction. Uh, where totally. uh, the, the, uh, Babylon Five is a good example of this. That you know, there's been amazing, you know, sort of advances in technology and exploration and in convenience. But that being said, poverty still remains a problem. Conflict between various yeah. races and diplomacy is still necessary. And, you know, fascism still can raise its head at any given moment. And uh, that we have to sort of think about that and what our real values are as human beings. I think that's really cool. Deep Space Nine does the same thing as well, which is the same show. But um, that's a whole other conversation uh, about how that one show is stealing from the other show. But <laughs> um, and to my chagrin, I think Deep Space Nine is stealing from Babylon 5. Uh, nonetheless, uh, that I think but, is fascinating, though. Um, that sort of sure. better, and, but still problematic. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think to your point about stealing, um, you know, I know I know I referenced uh, Firefly and Serenity earlier. It's definitely a franchise that, uh, other than being inspired by, uh, you know, the uh, post Civil War um, United States, definitely feels like what if we made a show where Starfleet was the bad guy? Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely kind of seems to be part of the log line of that that universe's whole deal. Um, I am also interested, you know, I haven't watched any of these um, CBS all access star Wars shows, but apparently uh, Picard, obviously oh, Star Trek. Place you mean? Yeah. A, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> thank you. The, this, well, look, Hey, we're all going to do it a couple more times. I'm sure in the next 10 minutes. Um, but I'm, I'm glad I wasn't the first one as we established oh, earlier. Uh, but I guess Picard's dealing with some sort of, uh, you know, Android's right stuff, uh, which I know is a big part of data's, um, arcs throughout that series, uh, and also the, the you know the feature-length films that they did, but I think that apparently that is kind of the primary conflict within the show is uh, uh, what sort of a you know uh, Blade Runner ethical questions can we play with within the Star Trek universe, and what has already happened within Star Trek that uh, you know gives us the ability to to question those things, and then I, I think it's Discovery, which takes place before the original series in the timeline? I don't know. I guess I there's so. a, a whole a whole ongoing plot in there where there's a mirror mirror universe where Starfleet's like an actively militaristic uh organization. And that seems fun and interesting. Um so I am glad to hear from you, Dustin, just kind of the ways in which the the bigness of Star Trek's canon allows it to play with a lot of different ideas. Um I, I guess we've we've kind of circled around uh both political questions and like structural questions. Um, and I, I do want to kind of jump over uh, and try to maybe thread both of these needles at the same time and talk about legacy sequels a little bit, Dustin. Um, and, and Arthur, I, I know you're going to have some opinions here. Uh, I, I just want to throw this football in the air and see where, where what happens to it. Uh, is JJ Abrams a hack uh, between his, his stewardship of this franchise and uh, the sequel franchise for star Wars <sighs> Is he just too big for his own britches and keeps taking on productions that nobody could possibly handle well? Uh, or does he just only have like three or four ideas and he keeps using them over and over again and thinking nobody will notice? I think hack is too kind. Um, <laughs> Ooh. And I, I, wow. I'm, I'm saying that with a degree of seriousness because, um, you know, I haven't seen all of, oh, that crazy TV show. Lost. Lost, the plane, yeah. Uh, I haven't seen all well, of he's, it. He's not in has not much to do with that. I think that's you know he's he, 
after the first season, he's pretty much hands off okay. on that one. Well, that's too bad to hear. Um, but it, it, it's not that's not terrible. What I've seen, I've seen all of eleven twenty two sixty three, uh, which he had some production work uh, for that series. Uh, despite um, James Franco, um, it works on, on a lot of levels. I think Cloverfield's interesting. You know, um, and so I, I think he can do some things, but those are the things that won him some notoriety. And then he got the big budgets and the big toys to play with, and he just got lazy. Well, I, well, all the well, things you I, mentioned though were all production efforts, though. Yeah, you know. Yep, Arthur. Yeah, Arthur said what I was going to say so exactly. I, yeah, he's he he's seems good like at an I, talent. He seems like an ideas guy that doesn't have the talent to execute his own vision. That's probably true. Yeah. So and, Hack is too kind because again, know, he's and lazy I, and maybe. Uninspired, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, he relies heavily on nostalgia, he rel- uh, as you mentioned, the pastiche. Uh, and you know, I I mentioned in our chat, like you know, it's interesting that the first two Star Trek films are really about a, a the director of the ship who just keeps failing upwards because you know he he gets fired, but he gets brought back on as the co captain of the ship under the admiral, and in the second movie, and it's like okay, like any other anybody else would have been completely removed from the program, but they're just right. And, and that feels kind of like a, a nice analog, I think, for Abrams. Like, no matter what the critical, resp- I mean, they gave him back, you know, the 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 Star Trek or Star Wars, yeah, franchise after disaster, uh, you know. And so it feels like, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't see the appeal of J.J. Abrams. I guess I think after watching, I think after everything with Star Wars the the true cracks really kind of show on 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 him as a filmmaker mm. mm-hmm. uh you know because into darkness i thought was cool when it first came out but in the time since uh with everything else that he's done since then it really shows oh he really isn't that good you know yeah. i mean he's got a thing where he just recycles the past right and, and, again, and even in uh, what's the one he did the super 8 right cuz that's just kind of a very spielberg yeah that's a yeah, it's a yeah. Spielberg movie all over again, yeah. and it's it, again just caters to nostalgia and pastiche, like you say. And uh, yeah, I, I grow weary with Abrams. Yeah, I, I just don't see the appeal. I, I I can't. He's one of those guys. I I just don't know why anybody would want to defend him. He's kind of like uh, Zack Snyder in that regard. I think. Yeah, you know, we can have that conversation another day. But uh, and, I, and Justin Lin is poorly served, I think, by his production, you know, efforts there. Yeah. Because I think Justin Lin could have made. I mean, he made you know Fast Five, which is a great reinvigoration of that franchise into a, a really he made three character arc. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, he made Tokyo Drift, which is yeah. the only reason that that franchise continued to exist. I mean, he is kind of one of the key authorial voices in in the Fast franchise, and I think is part of, you know, the, the, the cleanliness of the action, right? You know, this kind of balladic chaos that exists in that world, this commitment to stories about, like, uh, fa- found families and friendship. Like, there's good shit going on in the Fast franchise, and I, I think you're absolutely right. I think Lynn is underserved by uh, his bosses yeah. uh, operating within the Star Trek universe. For sure, for sure. Um. All right. I mean, you know, we've we've touched on a number of the things that are themes in the movie, but we again have all sort of decided that they're not really dealing with any of them at all. Um. Is there anything else that has got enough meat on the bone that you want to chew on it a little bit more before we move to uh, verdict time? Shelf or trash? What do you say, Arthur? Uh, I think it's trash. I, I mean, you know, like I said, this is sun- Sunday afternoon entertainment. And I, I think that kind of lends itself to a certain criteria, and so I, I think it's a fun ride. But overall, it's it's trashable. Fair enough. What do you say, Dalton? Well, look, as much as I 
want to have fun with a film where uh, I get to talk about Anton Yelkin want to having all this wanting to have all the space sex, and then Dustin still gets called a pervert somehow. You know, lots know, of points right? for me on this one. Hey, look, I don't know, man. For some reason, I I can do it, and you can't. Uh, some shoes look good on some folks, and some don't. Uh, hey, give us your I, answer I before I mute you. <laughs> it's trash. Yeah, I was talking around it. I, yeah, I like a lot about this. We, we've all kind of talked about things that we go for in this film, but I'm just not on board with it. I'm going to say the same thing. Don't own it. Watch it whenever it comes on. Yeah, I mean, when it comes on, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. don't change the channel. Uh, or, you know, if it comes up in your feed in your uh, various uh, streaming platform, yeah, uh, by all means, turn on uh, Star Trek Beyond. But otherwise, no. I mean, why would you do that? Uh, why would you own it? Uh, why would you, you know, commit to physical media? I would not. And so I say trash as well. So there you go. That is the uh, part three of our part threes, part de, uh, uh of our uh, little uh, series here. We have one more part left, right? Or two more parts. Actually, we have two Justin, more left. Hmm? Yeah, this is just part two of our part threes, is it not? Correct. I can't count. We know. That is terrible. <laughs> we weren't We weren't math majors. <laughs> yeah, we were like, English majors. That's correct. And so, yeah, counting is maths, and I'm not going to do that. I'm not a math leap by any means. No, me neither. So uh, next, number next... <laughs> is another movie. That's right. Next week, we're going to continue this uh, threequel celebration. Uh, so grab your pitch pipes, because we're going to Barden University to discuss the Barden Bellas as we look at Pitch Perfect 3. And that's right, dear listener. It's going to be all acapella all the time, which means uh, we're going to do the podcast acapella like we always do. We've got a lot of practice. <laughs> you keep watching. We'll keep talking. And we'll see you all next time. <laughs> <laughs>